Welcome to episode 24 of the Seeking the Military Suicide Solution podcast brought to you by the Military Times. I'm Dwayne France. And I'm Doc Shauna Springer. And we'd like to thank you for taking the time to learn more about suicide in the military-affiliated population. Check out all the shows so far. You can find them at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS. Thanks again for joining us to listen to a conversation about service member veteran and military family suicide. Today, we're talking about suicide in a particular population, one that is often overlooked when it comes to addressing suicide in the military. Shauna, what can you tell us about our guest? Yes, so in July 2019, Captain Matt Kleiman was selected by the Chief of the National Guard to lead the National Guard Bureau's new Warrior Resilience and Fitness Division. The new division was created, as he explains, to synchronize well-being, resilience, and prevention efforts across the National Guard to enhance efficiencies and improve behavioral health outcomes for the force. Captain Kleiman also serves as Director of Psychological Health for the National Guard Bureau, a position he has held for four years. In this role, he designs, develops, and directs an enterprise-wide system for psychological health, fitness, and resilience for over 450,000 National Guard members and their families. He's been a mental health provider for 25 years, and like anyone who does this work as a dedicated calling, he has worked with many clients who have reached a point where they see no other way to end their pain. He's expressed that it's heartbreaking to witness the impact this issue can have on individuals, coworkers, loved ones, and families. Matt also lost his brother-in-law to suicide in 2009 and has personally seen the impact this has had on his own family. So this issue is also very personal to him. I consider him a friend and trusted ally on this sacred mission and feel proud that Dwayne and I are able to host him today on Seeking the Military Suicide Solution. Yes, I absolutely appreciate him being able to give the National Guard perspective on suicide prevention. We'll get into the conversation and come back afterwards to pull out some of the key points. I really appreciate you coming on the show because uh, it's important to have the conversation about National Guard suicide because uh, sometimes it's overlooked and it can be a little more complicated than active duty. From your perspective and what you're doing, what do you see as working when it comes to addressing suicide in the National Guard population? Yeah, thanks for asking that question. So the National Guard, as many people know, is a very unique component of the military because you're essentially dealing with a population that works part-time as a service member and then they live and they mirror within their local communities. So so when you're setting up a strategic program for a population like that, it's really important that you understand how unique that population is based on where they live and then you have an approach that's flexible enough to account for those kind of cultural factors across the country and across the world. So I think in terms of what we're doing right, and I look forward to talking to you about this today, because it really has taken a very broad approach using um, innovation, knowing that you're not going to solve a problem like suicide with a, a conventional approach, but being flexible, having leadership support to do that, I think has been really critical for us. You know, even though I'm a behavioral health provider, I, I don't think this is a problem that only behavioral health providers can solve. So I think having that um, support from leadership is, is really critical. And then also for us, I think it's really been looking at 
some of the challenges that the guard has that are uh, unique based on, like I said, where they live. So access to care. When you're talking about suicide, you're typically not dealing with a population that you have a lot of people in crisis at any one time. So it's really about getting care in place early and often. So when someone's starting to experience the stress that may come from the, the multiple hats they wear within the National Guard, the stress of the mission, balancing all that with what, what may be happening at home in their, in their personal life, you really have to look at having that person have an access to services and care within their community that they can leverage. And one of the misconceptions about the military when it comes to the reserve component and the National Guard specifically is that if you wear a uniform, you should just be able to walk in and get care, you know, at any kind of uh, military treatment facility, vet center, uh, federal facility. And that's just not true for, for, for this population. So I think we've put a lot of work and effort into looking creatively at how we can get our folks into some kind of care option at an earlier point than waiting until they may have some suicidal risk factors. So that really frames a lot of the work we've done. You know, and I think that's a definitely is a unique part of what the National Guard does is you have to work with the communities much more closely than, say, someone in active duty, because it is a little bit of a closed loop system. Again, here in, in uh, El Paso County, Colorado, we have Fort Carson active duty service members. They have everything they need on Fort Carson. That care is accessed there. Um, and definitely guardsmen who are in the area. But if you're in Southwest Colorado or you're in Kansas, you know, someplace that doesn't have access to these military treatment facilities, it requires the National Guard to work a lot more closely with their communities on suicide prevention than maybe some of your active components. That's very true. And when I came into this position about four years ago, uh, one of the first things I noticed was the Guard has these silos of excellence. So when they have these programs set up for specific problems, suicide prevention programs, transition assistance programs, behavioral health programs, every state was doing it a little bit differently. Some states were very robust and some uh, communities were very robust in terms of what they provided. We have, of course, the Air Guard and the Army Guard that had their own service-specific programs that were available. And we had really a, a wide array of, of these best practices that seemed to be happening all over the place. It became really evident to me pretty quickly that we didn't have a great way to align this and leverage our best practices to inform our broader strategic effort across the National Guard. And that's really one of the challenges that the Guard faces when you have 54 distinct states and territories, all with an adjutant general and a governor that sort of has a lot of authority within that state or territory, and then having a National Guard Bureau that's sitting in the D.C. area in a strategic role, how do you take what we're doing really well, and how do you, you know, again, we have success stories all over the place, but how do we take that approach and leverage it so that the entire National Guard can benefit? If someone's figured out how to provide a suicide prevention program that's effective, that can be measured, that gets results, how do we take that approach and share it so that the broader organization can benefit. So you know, we've set up some programs within the Guard that instead of trying new things, we've taken the things that we're already doing, we put it into a construct that really gives us an, an opportunity to test and pilot these best practices, great ideas that our folks have that are being implemented or, or could be implemented with some support. And then we have helped to look at measuring consistently how we define success in those programs, sharing those successes across the 54, 
and informing that broader strategic approach doing that. We have about 23 pilots right now that we're actually running in a program called Innovation Incubator for, for our uh, NGB approach. And, and that's been really successful because states see that as beneficial to them. They can get some funding, they get technical assistance, they get support from NGB, and we can learn about what they're doing and then share it. And that, that's really been a, a huge benefit for, for informing our, our larger efforts over the last few years. You know, and I think it's, it's interesting to me because I see that in the larger suicide prevention space in the military population, probably overall, is that, you know, that's one of the things that's not working is we have these small pockets of effectiveness, as you're describing, but then also we know what's working at the national level. We have the public health approach and increasing connectedness and making sure people have economic stability. We know these things work, but then it's how do we apply it at the local level? And that sounds like what the National Guard Bureau has been able to do with these pilot programs is to test some of that out, informed at the national level, but using some of the community level support to actually do things that are effective. Right. It's taking what I would consider one of our greatest challenges and turning it into a strength. So the challenge being we have all these different programs that are somewhat removed from one another, but the strength there is because we have so much group think happening, the potential for that, when you bring these folks together who are all looking at similar problems through a slightly different lens, it gives us a much more comprehensive strategy overall when we're trying to tackle this for the 450,000 service members that are currently serving in the National Guard. And, and I tell you, just personally, in my position at, at the National Guard Bureau, you know, I've been for the last 10 years or so in, in a very strategic role. In other words, I'm no longer practicing on the ground. I'm, not, I'm no longer seeing clients. So the question that I ask myself and my team almost every day is, you know, how can what we do at, at a headquarters level function be relevant to those that are on the ground. And if what we're doing doesn't somehow translate into helping someone who needs help at a particular time, then why are we doing it? And, and, and when you look at kind of those strategic pillars that we have to you know, function thinking about, it's, it's not only access to care, which, which is a big one, but looking at how do you measure success? How can we inform the guards programs to come up with an algorithm to say, we know you've been successful when you've done X, Y, and Z. And for suicide prevention, that's tough because typically yes. the way that's measured in the military is let's count how many suicides we've had. And if you have fewer suicides this year than you did last year, then somehow that's a success. But, but you don't, that doesn't translate very well from, to a, into a program perspective because you may, you maybe have a program where you're screening and identifying someone at risk and providing some services but you're not going to see it day to day, you know, in terms of suicidal behavior. So we've invested a lot over the last couple of years in looking at how do we measure quality? How do we do it in a way that's going to resonate with our providers and with our specialists on the ground? And how do we use that to inform what we do next? So the hardest thing to do, I think, as a strategic programmer, isn't to start something new, it's to stop something that doesn't work. <laughs> so if we're doing something and that does not show results, isn't working, isn't helping, you know, I want to stop doing that and start doing something that works. So we have actually a, a program right now that's uh, SPRING is the acronym. It's Suicide Prevention and Readiness in the National Guard. And this is our way of looking at using analytics and data information to inform decisions that are made at the leadership level based on objective data. And, and this data is being captured publicly. So we have, you know, again, the National Guard is everywhere. So we have a lot of public available data on our, on our population and in communities. 
And we also have data from our units that we can start to use to look at outcomes like readiness, fitness, how our folks are doing in terms of how they manage their stress, how they sleep, what kind of behaviors they're demonstrating when it comes to substance use, smoking. All of these can be considered upstream drivers of suicide. So you don't have to wait until someone's in a suicidal state to have a program that can be considered a suicide prevention program. So I, you know, I've, I've been really pleased with the evolving culture over the last couple of years as it relates to programs that we're putting in place that are relying on objective data as opposed to just anecdotally, someone likes it, so let's do it. I'm trying to get away from that. I appreciate that you bring that up. And, and this is something that I've discussed with colleagues even here in my community, but also nationally is that it is hard to know whether or not what we're doing works, right? If for veteran homelessness, if the number of homeless veterans in your community goes down, then you know that what you're doing is effective. Veteran unemployment goes down. You know that if those, but just because veterans don't die by suicide doesn't mean you've solved veteran suicide. So it is this strange, how do you measure that? <laughs> and, and so it's, it's interesting to me is how do we get ahead of that? I, I always say if we're using intelligence that is two years old to fight a battle today, right? You know, we know the 2019 numbers now maybe, but really we have solid 2018 numbers. But if we're doing 2018 stuff today, we're going to get 2018 stuff in 2020. What are some of those measures, maybe a little bit more specifically that you're seeing that is measuring some of that upstream stuff, promoting wellness and keeping people from getting into a suicidal crisis rather than that intervention moment? Great question. Before you can start to measure something, you have to know what you're really measuring. And, and I think that was one of the biggest challenges we had when it comes to military suicide prevention is getting leadership to start to focus a little bit away from suicidal behavior and more on, like you said, those upstream drivers. So when we think about an upstream approach to suicide prevention, we wanted a framework that we thought would fit with our population. And, and so what we chose to to use to kind of leverage some of these programmatic successes that we feel we, we, we could have is a total force fitness framework. And some folks may be familiar with that, but what that really is is a mind, body, spirit approach to this topic. So we want to measure success around not only how physically fit a person is, because that's typically in the military what you think of when you think of fitness is, you know, everyone already understands that fitness is important. So you don't have to convince anybody of that in the military. But when we think of fitness, what are the impacts if you're not psychologically fit? What are the impacts if you're not spiritually fit? What does that look like? How do you measure that? Uh, so there's eight domains of fitness that we believe are really critical to a person's total fitness that can be measured just the way we measure push-ups and sit-ups and how, you know, how fast you run two miles. I mean, it's, so when we start to measure those results, it's, it's really about measuring not suicidal behavior, but the overall total fitness of our force. And so we've really set up our programs to look through that lens. And I think that's been helpful from a culture standpoint, from a stigma standpoint, because nobody has to be convinced that fitness is important. That's been one, I think one of our wins early on was getting leadership to see the link between TFF to total force fitness and suicide, that it's all part of a spectrum. So I can certainly get more specific and talk about some of the measures we have, but that's really been our broader approach to looking at this through a much more preventative lens. 
And I think in, again, this is something that we're continuing to have a lot more of these discussions is trying to find a framework that works with the organization. But I wonder in going back to National Guard, because of the unique nature of National Guard, that would look different in the National Guard. You know, again, I, I work with a lot of service members, veterans who left active duty and then the National Guard or, you know, the other way around. The National Guard has a unique, as you said, you know, sort of foot in both buckets experience where that you're not just focusing on, you know, psychological health, but employment, right? If, if the only money that that National Guard member is making is their drill pay, then that's a problem, right? You know, obviously, psychological impacts don't just happen from combat. And, and I use the example of both the active duty and the Guard being activated for Hurricane Katrina. I mean, I, I still work with veterans as a clinician who a large part of their trauma is related to that. Or we think about the California wildfires or the Texas hurricanes or the current activation where National Guard members are having to be exposed to things that they signed up for, that they trained for, right. but also have long-term impacts. But we need to ensure that they have the support to keep that from getting to a place where it's impactful for them psychologically, spiritually, emotionally. Right. We worked in New York specifically over the last few weeks uh, using COVID again as a really timely example of this. We have a partnership. You know, Guard can't really do a lot without really significant partnerships. So we know that in terms of providing care to our population, we rely heavily on the community, but we also rely on our federal partners. So in New York, for example, uh, we have a partnership with the vet center there, and they're providing support to those individuals right now that are activating in a mortuary affairs role. And these are guard members that don't have specific training for this. This isn't part of their normal day-to-day -day job. And when you think about going into someone's home and, and pulling out a deceased person who may have been there for quite a while and the, the psychological impact that that could have, I mean, again, our population is doing everything they need to do. What we don't know is what are going to be the impacts three months, six months, nine months from now. So these partnerships with the VA and with Vet Center and with local community organizations that are going to really want to step up, they want to help the National Guard. I mean, I've, I'm getting calls every week saying, what can we do to support? What can we do to help? So it, it really starts to look beyond what, what that person's activation status is and looking at this as a situation where, look, we're all in this together. These are individuals that are going to go back to their jobs, you know, a few months from now, and they're going to be carrying some baggage with them from a very difficult situation that they've been asked to mitigate. And, and so relying on those community partnerships is going to be huge for us to be able to make sure that we have a, a response that's appropriate and deserving of, of, of these individuals that have been asked to do so much. And you mentioned it before that this isn't just a clinical solution, right? You know, this isn't something that you and I as mental health professionals or our colleagues nor is it something that is just on the community to solve. It's really a combination of both. And the National Guard, by necessity, has to exemplify that partnership just because of the nature of the organization. Exactly. I mean, and that's, what's, that's the fun part of my job, right? So, you know, we have people who are out there on the front lines. My job is really to try to go out there and find resources that we can bring to the table for our folks. So it's, it's actually... It's been challenging over these last few months because, you know, working from home a lot and not being able to go out and have these face-to-face -face meetings can be a little hard when I really look at my role more strategically. I was up on the Hill probably a dozen times last year because lawmakers, Congress, they all 
have an interest in wanting to figure out how to better support our population. You know, I've met with, you know, half of your guests that you've had on your podcast, Dwayne, I've met with them because we're all part of a very tight knit close community. And we're all driven by the fact that we're in this together, our folks and their folks, and whether you're DOD, whether you're guard, whether you're reserve, whether you're a veteran, there's really so many more similarities than there are differences in terms of what this population needs. So we have to work together. We have to partner. We have to take this mind, body, spirit approach. We have to get upstream of the problem. We can't wait until someone's in a crisis state. But we also have to recognize that when they are, we have to have programs and services available. And so it's, so again, my role is kind of in that 30,000 foot looking at the broad landscape. And we want to set up our programs in a way that, again, are, are diverse, but also able to be responsive to those local needs in those local communities. Because Texas and Vermont, New York and Alaska. They have, Central they all Texas have and West Texas are different, right? I mean, just <laughs> exactly from right. State to state. Exactly right. Yeah. So I can't be the expert on all of that, but I certainly can know where to go, what resources and what expertise to tap into so that we can make sure our approach is customized for those local populations and resonates with our total force. This is definitely something that I'm hearing that is necessary. And we're having a lot of conversations around things. And, and, and I think we are at this point where many people are aware, as you said, lawmakers are starting to approach you. But in, and then maybe as long as it's gone, and there's a lot of frustration and people are wanting something that they can do, right? What action steps that they can take. And so from your perspective, um, what are some things that people can do to make an impact on suicide in their community, in their organization or personal lives? It's such a great question. And we think about this a lot through the, obviously through the National Guard lens that it's really a call to action to these local communities because For our population, we live and breathe and work and operate in all of these local communities. And so if you're trying to to do something in your local community, the odds are very strong that you have Guard members embedded in that community. In fact, I I think I've read somewhere that the National Guard has at least one person in, in every zip code in the United States. So talking directly to those community members, it's just to, like you said, to get involved, to figure out, you know, who in your community can you be working with to make sure that these programs are, are being responsive to the actual needs of, you know, of that community. And so having an awareness of, of, of who lives in your community, what are the local programs that you can get engaged in? Again, suicide is such a broad topic. I think people sometimes feel a little bit helpless because you know, how do you know who's at risk for suicide? Well, you don't need to know who's at risk for suicide. You need to sort of reach out. You need to, express that you care. You need to find someone who may be going through, it may be a neighbor, it may be someone you work with, it may be someone in your family who may be going through some stress and helping them get upstream of that so that you can encourage them to seek help before it gets to be a crisis state. One of the analogies I like to use with my team, and they've heard this a lot, is it's um, when you're trying to prevent heart attacks, you don't go around with paddles looking for someone having a heart attack. That is not the approach you take. You don't need to to be a physician to know, you know, how to help someone avoid having a heart attack. It's things like, how do you eat right? How do you exercise right? How do you, you know, look at your cholesterol, your blood pressure? And, and with suicide, it's very similar. You just need to find those opportunities to help a person who may need some assistance. And that is suicide prevention. And that's what we've been talking about, you know, over the last three years in the Guard. And we, we are starting to see that needle move. 
Yeah, and I agree. Just being able to have this conversation at this point with the show and with the number of guests that have been eager to come on, like yourself, to be able to have this conversation, I also am, am seeing the needle move. Captain Kleiman, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. This has been my pleasure. Thank you. This is Doc Springer. My new book, Warrior, is out. I don't always get a book endorsement, but when I do, it's from the world's most interesting man. Hello, my friends. These are difficult times that we are all going through. So many people offer opinions on this COVID-19 situation, what to do, how to cope. So you don't know whose perspective to listen to. I would like to suggest to you a doctor, Dr. Shona Springer. She has worked for years with our warriors. She is extremely insightful and can give you all kinds of good information. I would like to recommend her book. It is called Warrior. It is important. There is information that can do good things for you. So I recommend it. Doc Springer, thank you. The book is called Warrior. Adios, amigos. Good health. Stay well. Stay isolated, but not alone. Adios. After listening again to the interview after he and I had recorded it, I think that in many ways, National Guard having this need to rely on community and military and mental health provider, that this may be an example of folks that might be doing good work under difficult circumstances when it comes to suicide. Oh, yes, for sure. I'm totally tracking on that. My first point that I wanted to bring forward is that it's been said that everyone who takes the oath of military service writes a blank check to their country. Service members do give up many of their individual rights to serve a purpose that's greater than themselves. And they make personal sacrifices to fulfill this oath. Often, one's occupational specialty bears little relation to what one actually does. For example, I've had many patients whose MOS was something very much other than what they ended up doing when they were deployed. In war and in a time of crisis, as in the global health crisis, everyone is reassignable. None perhaps more so than those who serve in the National Guard. Matt shared a poignant example of how National Guard members may be deployed right now as an extension of mortuary affairs. As he said, we should take a long pause to think about the level of trauma that a National Guard member may experience when asked to go into homes to recover people who have been deceased for quite a while whether due to COVID, natural deaths, illnesses, or suicide. This kind of sacrifice is what it means to write a blank check to those who serve our country. And these men and women deserve the same access to care and the same quality of care that we push for so frequently for those who serve in a full-time capacity. I really appreciated Matt bringing out that point. I've often said this as someone who is in logistics, who did security escort in Afghanistan, which arguably for many might be an MP role or an infantry role. But when I first joined the military, I wasn't thinking that that was something that I needed to do. Whereas an infantryman, that's in their mindset, right? And the same thing yep. with someone who, who joins for mortuary affairs, go through the advanced training for mortuary affairs. They have time to get their mindset around that this is something that they have to do 
But then if yeah. you take somebody who doesn't have that mindset or that understanding of how do I deal with this ahead of time and put them in that situation, we're going to have to deal with what the mortuary affairs folks dealt with ahead of time. We're going to have to do that for these troops afterwards. That's right. I mean, and the psychological elasticity that's required when you have to drop into something that you haven't mentally been trained up for or prepared for, and then go back to a regular job on a Monday, that's an incredible amount of stress to put on your psyche. And it's a lot like, in, in a sense, taking a pediatrician and putting them into an ER and saying, I want you to now take care of people and you're going to lose a lot more than you can save. And it's a tremendous amount of trauma. And it just really impacted me to think about that and then about the struggle that it is to get people quality care and services in some parts of the country with National Guard and reserve members. You know, there are a number of things I could have commented on with Matt's interview, but ultimately was pulled to comment on something he says at the very end of the interview. It was this line that stood out to me. You do not need to know who is at risk for suicide to be able to do something to prevent suicide. I wholeheartedly agree. Moreover, I think the emphasis on trying to predict and separate people into two groups has hidden costs that are often overlooked. Separating people into those who are at risk and those who are not makes assumptions about the nature of risk. In fact, in my observation, risk, like happy marriages, ebbs and flows over time. In response to the sum total of our physical and emotional well-being, relationship health, stressors, and usually other hidden pain points. I've said this before and it's worth repeating. If our strongest and bravest citizens, our warriors, can die by suicide, this should lead us to be humble about how suicide risk can become a challenge for any of us should we face a perfect storm of stressors. That perfect storm is going to vary between people depending on their unique vulnerabilities. Dividing people into categories such as at risk or not at risk increases shame and stigma and moves us further away from the goal of being the kind of humans that look out for each other, that support feelings of belonging with those around us, that are radically inclusive of others, and that exercise compassion when we notice shifts in those we care about. This is upstream suicide prevention. And I love that Captain Kleiman made this point on a nationally disseminated podcast about suicide prevention in the military and veteran tribe. You know, that's uh, really interesting. I'm thinking about another public health epidemic, smoking, right? I mean, I think even smokers will tell you they know that there's a risk for cancer. They know that there's health risks. They know that there's economic impacts with the cost of this habit. But we don't need to know that to conduct an intervention to help someone stop smoking, sort of everybody's at risk, right? That's one of the risk things. And we don't have to say you particularly are going to have cancer. It's that if you continue in this behavior, this is a likely outcome. And so I, I think it's really important to apply that to suicide is we can't say these particular things are what indicates someone at risk. Everyone may be at risk. And so we need to do those things ahead of time to mitigate whatever risk there is instead of waiting until the last moment to jump in. Well, yeah. And I think of this as an extension of our discomfort with the unknown, with anxiety, with withholding anxiety in life, that we feel uncomfortable and anxious about the possibility of suicide. And so we try to predict and control. And I think there are limits to what we can do. And then if we invest a lot of time and money 
in that kind of method that we are not investing time and money in other things that might be more effective in preventing suicide. Yeah, I think, and this is, again, something where my thinking is changing and emerging over this, or maybe really just solidifying, is I I knew that there's a difference between intervention and prevention, but everybody who's looking for those signs and let me know who's at risk so I can stop that, that's actually intervention, right? Um, But people think that intervention is prevention, and prevention is helping individuals not get to that place in the beginning, if at all. Once again, I really appreciate everybody. A great conversation with Captain Matt Kleiman. I really appreciate that we were able to get the National Guard perspective on the show. You can check out the show notes at veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash STMSS24. You can get the links to the things we talked about in this episode, as well as on militarytimes.com. As a reminder, you can ask us questions or let us know what you thought about the show by going to our Facebook group, moderated by the outstanding D. James, by going to veteranmentalhealth.com forward slash group. Just a reminder that the guests and reflections on this show are for informational purposes only and should not be considered professional advice. While Dwayne and I are mental health professionals, we are not your mental health professionals. We always recommend that you discuss these things with a licensed clinician. You can find out more about the work that Shauna is doing by checking out her latest book, Beyond the Military, A Leader's Handbook for Warrior Reintegration, and the work that I'm doing with my latest book, Military in the Rearview Mirror. Both are available on Amazon and we'll have links to those in the show notes. And always remember, you can connect with the Veteran Crisis Line by calling 1-800-273-8255 and pressing 1. Chat online with them at veterancrisisline.net or texting 838255. Thanks again for joining us to talk about seeking the military suicide solution and make sure to follow Military Times on social media to keep up with the latest shows. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, remember, you're not alone, ever.